Now, my mum was 23 and I was two. This was 1970. And she decided to make a very brave decision and leave my dad. My home was so traumatic that I had to deal with moving all the time that, you know, a lot of the time I used to sleep under the bed if I had a bed. So I was the kid at the back of the classroom looking out of the window, not engaged with school or academics because there was so much crap in my life that I just didn't deal with normal things. It was just horrible. I remember sleeping in the loft of Woolworths very often, but no one knew I was there because I was very clever at hiding. I was offered a job in sales and it was commission only. And I was like the worst salesperson the company had ever had in its record of being a company. <laughs> My narrative internally was, why am I such a loser? And I was three months behind with the rent, there was no food in the cupboard, literally I was scavenging for, for, to survive. And he said, listen, I really want to help you because you've got so much potential because I see you in me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the book that changed my life. I didn't care what they said to me, it didn't matter. I knew that I was going to be successful. He got his wallet out, he gave me his credit card and he said, listen, Marco, that's the most amazing thing we've ever seen. You were right, there's 10,000 pounds. And that moment in my life was probably the most pivotal of my entire life. Hi, and welcome to Let's Listen with Kieran McBreen. My name's Andrew Ward, and I'm here with Kieran. Kieran, how are you today? I'm great, Andrew. Thank you. And we have a special guest today, don't we? We have Sir Marco Robinson. And for those of us who don't know who Sir Marco is, why don't you just give us a quick background? Yeah, I met Marco um, on a workshop, mm. and uh, he's a wonderful guy. He's got an amazing story, as our listeners are going to soon find out. But Marco's got a real commitment towards himself and towards his mum, which I thought was beautiful, his mother. His mother had a really difficult time, difficult um, difficult past. Marco's upbringing was tough, and he uses the learnings from all his experience to really motivate himself today for, for him to be successful. And this is a slightly longer interview than normal, so we're going to get straight into it. This is Sir Marco Robinson. Mr. Marco Robinson, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Well, how can I refuse Mr. Kieran to be a guest of his amazing show? Thank you so much, Marco. Marco, what's your why? What brings you here today? Oof, it's a good question to get asked a lot. I mean, I can tell you what my purpose is, which is very close to my why, pretty much the same thing. And my purpose is to be a bright, shining, magnificent light and do wonderful things for myself and do wonderful things for other people. That's really what I'm all about. Lovely put, Marco. Marco, tell us, what is your story? What message do you want to give to our audience? Well, I'll start at the beginning. And the, the earliest, I mean, the earliest memory I have is when I was crawling around as a baby um, on newspapers 
and I could smell two things. I could smell cigar smoke and I could smell smelly feet. That's my earliest memory. And now I realize that was my dad, my biological dad, who was actually bedding on the horses and studying the horse form of the weekend. Now, all he did, that's all he did outside of work. And what he did, he spent literally all of the money in the household. He spent my mum's money, spent his own money, and he ran up debts all over town. And in those days, you had local stores that you could have like an account that you could run for weeks, but he, he got so behind that we had debt collectors and stuff coming to the door. Now, my mum was 23 and I was two. This was 1970. And she decided to make a very brave decision and leave my dad. We lived in Leicester. And she went to move to the north of England in kind of Derbyshire way to live with her mum and her stepdad. Now, her stepdad owned a pub. She had been in that environment for many years as a kid because her mum had remarried him. And she had three more kids with him. It was very cold. It was January. And on that doorstep... Her stepdad said to her mum, it's either me or them. Now, the reason that he said that, I didn't know until 50 years after the effect. But basically, my mum was sexually abused and she was four years old. He used to ask her mum to have a bath with her when she was tiny, a lot. And my mum had to put up with that. And she managed to figure out how to lock the bathroom door and get away from it eventually. But when she was 12, he put his hand on her breast and said, I didn't marry your mum for your mum. I married your mum to get to you. So you can imagine how terrified she was in that household as a young girl and as also a teenager. And to actually go have to go back to live there was not really what she wanted to do. So he said to her mum, it's either me or them. Her mum said, you can't stay here. She, had, she didn't know anyone. She had nowhere to go. Uh, so she had the, the first thought that came into her head was go to the park and get some shelter. So she went to the park, she found some trees, she tore some branches down. And it was, don't forget, this is January, Kieran, right, in the north of England. And it was snowing and she put the branches on us and then we slept there for a couple of days. We nearly died. And ironically, we got taken in by her mum's next door neighbour, who didn't know that we were living there. But, you know, during that childhood from about till the age of 10, really, we were moving around a lot. We were very transient, like gypsies, really. No home, no permanent home, no permanent residence. I must have been 50 schools. And at that point in my life, I was very tiny. I, I was very pale and I had bright orange ginger hair, right? So everywhere I went, people could see me. And because of that, I got bullied. And because I was always the new kid in school, I got bullied literally all of the time. So what I used to do is I used to escape, I used to bunk off school, but also I'd dye, my, I'd dye my hair with black shoe polish to escape and basically be invisible because I didn't have the, the resources to fight back. I didn't know how to fight back physically and emotionally because my home was so traumatic. I had to deal with moving all the time that, you know, a lot of the time I used to sleep under the bed if I had a bed. Now, she remarried my stepdad, who seemed to be the solution for her, had a great permanent job. He was, a, you know, security, all that kind of stuff. But eventually, he turned out to be a misogynist. Um, he was a lorry driver. He used to come home at weekends, and he used to sleep around, and he slept with his sister and all kinds of rubbish like that. And he used to physically abuse her and domestically abuse her. And I was an, an eight, nine-year-old kid that... You, I, I fought back, but there's only so much you can do. And because, again, it was even more traumatic because I would come home. If When he was there, when I would walk in the door, it was violent. So they would be throwing chairs at each other, phones at each other. It was 
it was just horrible. And my only salvation was my imagination. The only place I could go was in, I couldn't go out. So I was the kid at the back of the classroom looking out of the window from like five, six years old, not engaged with school or academics because there was so much crap in my life that I just couldn't deal with normal things. So I would go into my imagination and I would pretend that I was James Bond. I would pretend that I was in living in Asia. I would pretend I was traveling all over the world. I would pretend I was had a beautiful girlfriend. You know, all the things that you live and dream about, I would dream about literally all the freaking time, more than naturally people would. And, you know, I did that a lot. And when I was 15, she left that abusive relationship, thank God, and she met the guy of her dreams, and she's still with him. It ended up being a love story and a happy ending. And I said to her at 15, I said, listen, I'm not going to come with you. I want you to be happy on your own with this guy. And I was living with my stepdad, which was not pleasant at all because he was sleeping with a student because we used to take students in, college students, and he was having an affair with a student he ended up marrying. And I had to be in that environment, and I didn't want to be in that environment. So what I did is I went round the local town. I asked the shop keepers, the managers, if I could clean their floor for a pound an hour. So I became the cheapest commodity in town. Now, not all of them said yes, but a lot did say yes. And because I was the cleaner, I used to come in first thing and also leave last thing at night. And I used to sleep in, I remember sleeping in the loft of Woolworths very often, but no one knew I was there because I was very clever at hiding. And now, now you call them the hidden homeless. And the hidden homeless, there's, there's millions of them, but the hidden homeless are the people that sleep in garages and parks and cars and people's couches, stuff like that. So I was hidden homeless for about six years. And it took me that long to get the money together to kind of get my own place. But also I was offered a job in sales and it was commission only and it was selling timeshare. And it was like the hardest thing ever to sell because it cost £10,000. There was an office in Manchester and you couldn't see it. You had to describe it. There was no internet. There was nothing I could show them online. Um, and I was like the worst salesperson the company had ever had in its record of being a company. And the reason I was bad was because I was hidden homeless. I was invisible. I wasn't used to communicating. I wasn't used to sharing. I wasn't used to being emotionally available. That was alien to me. And I was the worst salesperson. I didn't sell anything for six weeks. And my, my narrative internally was, why am I such a loser? Maybe I should just go back and clean floors. That's what I'm destined for, right? And then six weeks after I started that job, the boss came up to me and said, listen, Marco, we love you because I was a nice guy, but you're not selling. And if you don't sell in the next two days, we're going to have to get rid of you. Now, that was kind of a trigger to me because... Whatever happened, there was no freaking way I was going back cleaning floors in my old town, which was associated with lots of trauma and pain. I didn't want to do that. So that boss that wanted to fire me triggered a different question internally, and the question turned into, why am I such a loser, to a very different question of how, I can, how can I succeed? And that question became a mantra. And I remember I didn't have a car, and the office was five miles from where I used to live. And I was three months behind with the rent. There was no food in the cupboard. Literally, I was scavenging for, for, to survive. And every day, I used to walk home and ask that question, how can I succeed? And I did it for two days. 
And when I came back to the office two days later, the top salesperson approached me, which I didn't expect at all. And he said to me, I know how you're feeling because I used to be homeless. I was the worst salesperson. There's no way you were the worst. I said, yes, I was. And he told me a story and I could relate to that. He became a relatable role model for me. And he said, listen, I really want to help you because you've got so much potential because I see you in me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the book that changed my life. It's the only book. It's the first book I ever read. I, want, I don't want you to tell anyone that you're reading it. I want you to go home and read the book until you get the message. So I literally sprinted home. I couldn't wait to read it. I would not written, really read a book before that. So I read this book. I read it eight times in the same night. I didn't sleep. And I was so electrified of like psyched full of positive energy in the morning I couldn't contain it and I ran to the office to, to, to for the first time ever in my life I wanted to sell I wanted to see my prospects and I wanted to go through struggle I wouldn't I didn't care what they said to me it didn't matter I knew that I was going to be successful and I ran to the office and it was so hot my suit was wet through with sweat so they had to send me home to get changed <laughs> it, it, true story right but they gave me a lift because, listen, we've, we, we love your attitude today. They gave me a lift. They gave me a lift home, got changed, came back. And I came into the office and I said, right, I don't give a shit what happens today, right? I'm going to be successful. And my first couple came in. He was, they were a married couple and they had a dog with them. And I thought, what, what, what are they doing with a dog? It's unusual, you know. And I found out that he was blind, she was blind, and that was a guide dog. And yeah, I wanted to be successful, but part of my old self was saying, how the hell are you going to sell a holiday that you can't see to people that can't see? <laughs> and it was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Literally everyone in the office thought there's no way he's going to sell that. It's just impossible. But they sat down and I said to them, I said, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think about this. I am going to show you something that's going to blow you away. You're going to love it. And at the end of four or five hours, you're going to get credit card out or you're going to buy it. I'd never said that in my entire life. And they said to me, no, you are not going to sell us anything. We are leaving now. And it was like a battle for five hours of my enthusiasm against their resistance. And after five hours, we sat down. He didn't say anything. He got his wallet out. He gave me his credit card and he said, listen, Marco, that's the most amazing thing we've ever seen. You were right. There's 10,000 pounds. Now, when that happened to me, you can obviously imagine what the F just happened, right? And I was like so blown away. The first reaction for me was, why the hell did you buy from me? And they said, this is your first sale. I said, yeah. Re they said, really? I said, yeah. And they started laughing. We started laughing so hard that we're just crying with laughter. And it was just one of those amazing connections. And they said, listen, the reason we bought from you is because you transferred your belief to us. And once we knew that you believed it, we believed it, and you completely changed our life. And that moment in my life was probably the most pivotal of my entire life. So that's my early story. That is certainly a story, Marco. And... Um I'm guessing that this couple just just created, you know, a connection with you and a trust. And that was the key ingredient in that conversation. Marco, I'm sure our listeners are, are wondering, what was the book? 
<laughs> if you ask me that, yeah. Before I tell you the answer, you've got to understand the context of me reading that book. And the context was pretty much any book that was positive then was going to shift me because I was desperate. So because I was so desperate, any positive message I was going to read was going to move me somewhere. Now, the book was called Bring Out the Magic in Your Mind by an author called Al Koran, who was actually a magician in the 1950s in England. He was the first magician in England in pr pretty much the world to do a trick where he used to guess what was in the envelope. That was his main thing. And he became really famous in the 50s, and he, he, he wrote a book about positivity and psychology and belief, because that's what magicians are all about. And it just made sense to me. And literally, I still read that book now. It's an incredible book. It's old. It's written in the 1950s, but it's an incredible book. And what are the key skills involved in the book? Belief is to have an un, basically a bulletproof belief a system that if you don't believe in yourself, no one else is going to believe in you. And I didn't have any belief in myself. That was what was the problem with me. I had all this doubt, but never any belief because in my younger days, I'm not saying this as a victim. I just didn't have a role model. I didn't have people around me that were positive. It was all negative. I didn't have any kind of like faith in my life. I didn't have any reason to live. People thought I was a waste of space. They thought I would never, even my school report was, this person's going nowhere fast. They're not going to have any career. They're going to clean floors the rest of their life. That's what my school report said, Kieran. Basically, my self-esteem and my self-worth was the lowest it could be. So it sounds to me, Marco, that you were scraping the barrel and there was only one way to go, and that was forward. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I got to the point where I looked back at my life and thought, ah, do I really want to... What am, I, what am I prepared to sacrifice not to do that? And what I learned was there's only, there's only really two triggers that get you to take action in life. Desperation and inspiration. Now, I found desperation for 21 years but I didn't have the tools to understand how to get out of it and when I read a book that gave me inspiration it was the first shining beacon of hope I pulled myself out of it and had another target and that was what happened thank you Marco and before we talk about your success let me just delve back into your story and particularly the relationship with your mother. What was the lowest point? There was, there's a lot, there was a lot of low points. But when you see your mum being beaten physically, that was probably the lowest point for me as an eight-year-old child. Because I'm thinking, my mum can't protect me. My, my stepfather doesn't like my mum. I'm on my own here. But of course, my first instinct was to protect my mum. And I couldn't do it. I tried to fight. I couldn't do it physically. So I had to wait and wait and wait and bide my time and just kind of be there as a silent guardian in a way, but a silent carer, I guess, right? And that's why I wanted the best for her. And that's why the, the relationship between my, my, me and my mum is probably the closest of anyone that I know. Well, you've just taken away on my next question, Marco, which was, how are things with mum today? How is she doing? She's doing amazing. You know, she lives in a beautiful town. She's got a great guy, got a great partner. 
She has some great hobbies. She's 77 now. She doesn't work. I retired her when she was 65. That was one of my goals to make sure that she was financially stable. She didn't have to work anymore because I've seen the life that she led, you know. I'm very protective over women, especially that are vulnerable. And I can, I've got radar. I know stuff that's going on without even talking to people. I know there's something going on. And if you look at my clients, they tend to be mostly women. And I think that's partly why. Because I feel that my best when I'm helping that individual, I feel I can be of more service to them. Because I can help them, you know, create an income. And of course, you know, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with fathers, but mum, when mums have children, they have more responsibility. They've got more to do. If the father leaves with an income, the mum's got to work and look after a child. It's not fair and equitable. You know what I mean? No, absolutely know what you mean, Marco. And I, I can sense a bit of empathy and sensitivity towards the challenges of being a mum in modern day society. Marco, you've been on the BBC. You've been on Channel 4. You are a sir. So tell our listeners about your success. Well, again, it started on that pivotal moment. If you look at my life before 21, it was complete failure. It was completely... <laughs> different from what it is now. Now it flipped. So I became salesperson of the year. I became the youngest sales manager the company had ever had at 22. And I became pretty much the top, one of the top people in that industry. I worked really hard for three years and I got offered jobs all over the world. I got headhunted all over the world to work for different companies. And a company in Malaysia, a public company, saw my work and said, listen, we're a big group. We own 30 hotels. We want to start a timeshare membership. Can you come and work for us? Uh, now, at that time, Malaysia was a very far away, 13-hour flight, and everyone told me that kind of were looking out for me, oh, don't go to Malaysia, it's a third world country, people live in trees and all that kind of stuff, right? Which I didn't believe because, you know, I'm not more open-minded than that. And I had a young child at the time, who was six months old, so they paid me first class, come out of a look, I went, to, I went to see it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I moved my whole family, sold everything, moved to Malaysia in 1997. And I was there for three months setting it all up. And then the Asian economic crisis came and the company couldn't pay me. Now, Malaysia was the only country that repatriated and fixed their currency. And I was able to say, right, well, I think I should stay. And I stayed and was, I would turn, I'd turn that company from a loss into a billion dollar company in two and a half years. Using the principles of success that I'd learned and the skills that I'd learned. Now, at one point, I had 3,000 staff. It was just an absolute monster. And then in 2000, three, three things happened to me that, again, changed my tra- trajectory of my life. And the first thing that happened to me was I had a heart attack and collapsed in the office, was taken to hospital. And they said to me, you've got to slow down. Success became an addiction. So far so that it compromised my health. I let it compromise my health. I found out my wife was having an affair with my best friend which was more painful than the heart attack here on. And then I lost, I had about a million pounds in the stock market and I pretty much lost 95% of that because I bought stocks in the company I was working for. It was like stock ownership kind of thing for employees. And I got played. I bought for $3 and they came out at 10 cents. So at that point, I knew I had to change my life. And I left that company and decided that I would never ever work for anybody ever again. I became my own boss, became an entrepreneur. And I did what I knew. I became a consultant for companies. I still was in demand. 
So I used to, you know, train salespeople, do management consulting, and eventually I got into motivational events. A bit like Tony Robbins, I do motivational seminars for like thousands of people, which really went well. But that dried up and the recession came and I was still in that. I went back to that marriage, which was a big mistake for me. I went back because of the children. But it was a big mistake for me because it compromised me. And in 2008, I said, right, how can I leave this marriage and be happy? So what I did is I wrote a book called Close the Deal and Suddenly Grow Rich, which became a number one bestseller, which completely blew me away. And then I said, right, how can I make a million dollars this year? I said, right, I'll start a company. I'll just see if I, I reach out to the hotels that I know and see if they've got any spare rooms they're not, good, they don't, they're not using. So I found loads of spare rooms they weren't using. It was the recession in 2009. And I said, right, what if I can sell these rooms in a voucher to companies? So like five day holiday worth two grand, but they could buy it from me for $50. And so what I did is I put a minimum order of 100 vouchers and I started selling to companies. And that year I made 12 million doing that, which was, oh my God, right? And I sold to Ikea, I sold to Rolex, I sold to Mercedes, Shell, major companies. And I had a team of 2,000 agents doing it with me. It became really successful. I won Entrepreneur of the Year for that. And then I got into real estate. You know, I had all this money. I thought, right, what am I going to do with it? I found out that I could buy real estate after the recession very cheaply in America for like 20 grand. So I'd go to America, buy these properties, and then people said to me, can you teach me how to do that? I then did events and seminars and education on it. And that became successful as well. And I wrote another book called The Financial Freedom Guarantee, which is specifically for people that want to retire with cash flow property. That became a number one bestseller in 2016. In 2017, Channel 4 approached me and said, listen, Marco, we've heard about your life story. We think it's amazing. Would you be interested in making a TV show with us to address the social housing issue by giving a house to a homeless family? And I said, oh, yes, I would love to do that. So in 2017, we start production on Get a House for Free in the UK. There was 25,000 families that we had to get through to interview and make the documentary about. I gave three houses away, paid the mortgage off. Uh, it was a hugely successful statement. We went to 70 countries. And then off the back of that, I started a charity called Freedom X, which is designed to help end homelessness. And we have a, a building in Barcelona where we've tested a model of getting people off the street so it's sustainable. And we have a 100% success record. So we, we find people that are struggling we put them in accommodation, we get them uh, obviously looked after, and then we retrain them in a career. And we get people at IBM and corporate sponsors to sponsor those families. So that came out of that TV show. And then one of my dreams as a kid, when I was looking out the windows at a six year, as a six-year-old, was to make a James Bond film. <laughs> so I thought, right, let's do this. And we started on the project of Legacy of Lies, which took seven years. But, you know, we went to number two in Netflix USA last year, and it was probably the best day of my life. I literally burst out crying all day. It was just amazing. So that's a bit of my success. Wow, Mark, that's just amazing. And um, it all sounds so exciting. And, and you sound like such a generous guy. I think anybody giving anything away, never mind three houses away, is just phenomenal. So um, well done to you for all that. Thank you. 
Marco, you mentioned the phrase principles of success. What would you say the three main principles for you are? What advice would you give to young people starting off? Number one asset that you have is your mind. The energy you've got to give is to improve your mindset. In traditional education, improving your mindset is not on the curriculum. We are conditioned to follow rules. We're conditioned to learn facts in an exam and pass it, and that validates us as a, a valuable member of society. But as we all know, that is a broken system. And it didn't work for me. I was outside of the spectrum of education because I had so many personal problems to deal with that I couldn't handle traditional education, which is, is still the case, which is a great shame. And you can't control that as an individual. What you can do is understand that your greatest resource you have is your resourcefulness. And one thing I have to tell everyone is number one, you've got to believe in yourself that anything is possible. That's number one. Number two, you've got to get a role model, a coach or a mentor that has achieved what you want and also believes in you. And number three, you've got to be self-disciplined to execute the tools that you learn and follow through despite a lot of adversity, despite failure, despite thinking of giving up. And you've got to align your actions with your desires, even if you're not getting the results. Because mostly in today's world, Kieran, which you know, it's all about instant gratification. If people work and they don't get results within seconds, minutes, and hours, and days, they give up. We don't live in an age of resilience anymore. We live in an age of what we call the snowflake. You know, if anything bad happens to our kids in our generation, they go on the phone and seek validation, which is a very, very bad thing. But at the end of the day, that's not the solution. The solution is, ed number one is education. It's the relevant education that's going to get what you want. And that is available now. As you know, the coaching industry is now the fastest growing industry in the world. It's the trillion dollar industry already. And as you know, you're a coach. People have more access to coaches now than ever before in history, but there still needs to be more access in the sense of, can I go outside of a university? Can I go outside of a traditional school to get education? And yes, you can, because you can learn from people that have learned how to do something that you want to do. So that's really the three things. Very well said, Marco. Thank you. So Marco, where can people find you? My Instagram is really the most active place I am, uh, which is Marco Robinson now. It's uh, got a blue tick, so you know that I'm the Marco Robinson. Go to my website, marcorobinson.com. But social media is where I hang out, and uh, you'll find me on there. Just DM me, send me a message, I'll reply, for sure. Super stuff, Marco. Well, look at Marco, we'll have to get you on because I know there's so much more you have to give and so many more stories you have. So, Sir Marco Robinson, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me on, Kiro. Pleasure. So that was Sir Marco, Kieran, a, an amazing interview, like literally from sleeping on a floor to a, a Netflix film. These are, these are wonderful stories, aren't they? They are. Marco's story is amazing, Andrew. He's a character. He's a really interesting individual and he's got so much to say and we could have spoke for hours and hours. The one thing I wanted to talk to you about was the, he made the reference to the snowflake, which is the joke that I always, you know, I always make and, and you slap, rightly slap me down. But I still think kids today have a tough time. Yeah, I mean, look at, let's look at Marco. He was going to school every day. He clearly identified that his hair was an issue. He was changing schools regularly. It's so difficult. I see it when a new starter comes into school. 
you know, you just feel for them because you know how difficult it is to fit in. Everybody wants to fit in. Everybody wants to be popular. Everybody wants to be successful. So um, Marco had a tough and, you know, <laughs> he also, just like you, uses the phrase snowflake very easily. It just rolls off the tongue for many, mm. many people who don't see the challenges of teenage life on a daily basis. Well, I absolutely uh, agree with him, though, is this teaching mental resilience. You know, if there's one thing that we can teach youngsters or young people, or we can continue to learn ourselves, it's mental resilience. It is so hard, but it's so important. Absolutely. And Marco's feelings about the traditional education system echo my own, as you know. I really want education to be about developing young people for, for what's ahead of them. You know, and I always use the example... Maths, do we really need maths? I look back and think, what, you know, what did I learn back in the day that I use now? You know, financial management is what I need, mm. you know? So stuff like that is, is very, um, it's common for people who are entrepreneurs who, you know, who had to figure maybe out the hard way, who didn't go through the traditional education system or maybe who didn't find success with the traditional education system, who are very passionate about you know, about their learnings and the application of these skills in real life. I was talking to a friend who's a teacher the other day and we, and we were talking about this and it's so true that kids today, they don't need maths, but they do need, as you rightly say, their financial management. And But within financial management, you get you do get maths, but you also get negotiation skills. You get an ability to control your emotions. There's, there's so much learning. This, this idea of having to learn in a linear style, it just doesn't really make sense. No, it doesn't. And we're very lucky, Andrew. You know, we've got some amazing teachers out there that bring a lot of creativity to the classroom. You know, when I when I see a, a teacher teach, I just look at them and I think, wow, I wish you were my teacher when I was 16, 14, whatever it was. You know, education has come such a long way since when we were at school, Andrew. And, um, you know, we do need to appreciate that teachers are restricted by a curriculum. The curriculum is restricted by an organization above them and so on and so on and so on. You know, so there's only so much teachers can do because at the end of the day, they need to assess the children and they need to have that grade that everybody wants at the end of the year. But, you know, if the, the more freedom we give to teachers, the more creative they can be. And there is amazing stuff happening. So I don't want to be Mr. Negative about the education system. There's, such, there's some amazing stuff happening out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that was Sir Marco. And uh, he always said his major message is believe in yourself and, you know, what you can achieve. Just talking about what we can achieve. The book is still for sale, Kieran. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, you're the best bookseller in the world. The book is always for sale. And before you ask, it is available directly from me. It's available on Amazon. It's available in Ireland and it's available in the UK. Great. And just remind us of the title. The title is Listen, Teenagers, Their Challenging Stories and How to Help Them. Please don't forget to tell your friends all about the podcast. We're talking real life stories to help real people. So please get the word out there. And this also brings us to the end of season two, Kieran. It does, Andrew. Look, thanks so much for everyone who subscribed, who downloaded and who shares the word about Let's Listen. Um, you know, we're both very passionate about this. And we purposely reach out to get really top stories on people sharing their, their deepest pains with us in order to help people out there. So we're going to take four weeks off and then we'll be back for season three. Take care, Kieran. All the best, Andrew. Thanks so much for all your efforts and your hard work. Bye bye.